The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Newt's World, I've just come across an interesting new book entitled The Rifle, combat stories from America's last World War II veterans told through an M1 Garand by Andrew Biggio. The book began when Andrew bought a 1945 M1 Garand rifle and handed it to his neighbor, World War II veteran Corporal Joseph Drago, unlocking memories Drago had kept unspoken for 50 years. On the spur of the moment, Biggio asked Drago to sign the rifle, and his signature began Andrew's mission to find as many World War II veterans as he could get their signatures on the rifle and document their stories. For two years, he traveled across the country to interview America's last living World War II veterans. Thousands from our greatest generation locked their memories away, never sharing what they had endured with family and friends, taking their stories to the grave. So how did this young Marine get them to talk? By putting a 1945 M1 Garand in their hands and watching as their eyes lit up with memories triggered by holding the women that have been with them every step of the war. I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, U.S. Marine and author, Andrew Biggio. Congratulations on the way you have been received with your book at Amazon and elsewhere. I think it's a great beginning for you for a career of really 
helping the country understand itself. Why don't we start, though, before we get to the veterans, with you, because you're also a veteran. And I'm curious, what triggered your interest in veterans? First of all, thank you for that intro. That was amazing, and I don't get a lot of intros like that. My love and desire to be a veteran and just to like really worship America's veterans started at a young age. I don't know what it was. I was just really captivated by the veterans who used to sell the poppies out in front of the supermarkets and raise money for the disabled veterans of America and so on and so forth. And when I was in eighth grade, 9-11 happened. I thought I was going to miss the whole show. And in 2006, I actually just had my 15-year anniversary of the day I landed at Paris Island, South Carolina, 6606. So 666, I landed at Paris Island. And it definitely was a form of hell for an 18-year-old kid who's never left home before. And it started there. I was a Marine infantryman. I did tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. Came home completely unscathed. And a lot of veterans didn't. A lot of men and women that I met, you know, healing up at Walter Reed Hospital from their amputations and wounds. I learned the most I ever did in the Marine Corps compared to any education I've ever had, master's degree, bachelor's degree, working in all sorts of kinds of fields. And the Marine Corps was the best education I ever had. So it was a great experience. But what ended up sparking this journey to hunt down America's last World War II veterans in a way was... How do I live a successful life after the military? I have to go back for one second, if you don't mind, and ask you, I'm an Army brat. So why did you join the Marines and not the Army? I don't know. I think it was just the uniforms. <laughs> Nothing more than that. You know, of course, I thought the Marines were tough and hard. But it's funny now because now I've done so much research and looking into it. And I've met so many of these paratroopers who jumped into a combat zone. I wonder if I had done this journey before the military if I would have made a different choice, but the Marines was something, man. Very, very great branch, very professional. Oh, no, look, I have the greatest respect for the Marine Corps, and I think it does an amazing job of taking young men and profoundly impacting their character and giving them a sense of, you know, somebody said one time, that you serve in the Army, you are a Marine, and that it just affects you that deeply. So you come back home, and you had been named for your grandfather's brother who was killed in World War II. How did all of that come together to give you some sense of reaching across the generations and being concerned about stories of a time before you were born? So I completed the six years in the military. And I have to drive by my house, and right next to my house is Andrew Biggio Square. It's a memorial sign, not dedicated to me, but dedicated to my grandfather's brother, who was only 19 years old when he was killed in World War II. So to see his name up there on that sign was, in a way, just sad and haunting for me because I would say to myself, you know, what happened to him that didn't happen to me? Why did I survive? And not that Andrew Biggio and... I remember my grandmother telling me she kept his letters he wrote home before he was killed in combat. So one day I went under the bed and started reading the letters that she kept in a shoebox from him before he was killed. And the first letter I read was how much he enjoyed, right behind me here, the M1 Grand rifle. And the M1 was the standard rifle of that time. It was the rifle that was issued to every private in the Army or the Marines and 
It was a new type of weapon. It was semi-automatic compared to our adversaries that we were fighting. And General Patton called it the weapon that won the war. And, you know, this letter that he wrote just made me want to go out and buy an M1 Grand. I wanted to connect to this long-lost relative. I wanted to feel what he felt, hold what he held. And I went out and bought an M1. I want to say I was satisfied for all of two hours holding it. And then it came time to, you know, now what? What do I do with this weapon? I bought it. I spent a couple thousand on it, you know, or whatever it was, 1500 bucks. And what's next? You know, I showed some family members. They just looked at it like, wow, that's a gun, you know? And I'm like, no, this is what Uncle Andy had. You know, this is a piece of history. And I don't think they were getting it much. So I had a light bulb kind of come over my head. And I said, wait a second, my neighbor, he fought in the Battle of Okinawa. I'm going to go bring him this rifle, see what he says. Joe, who you mentioned earlier, I believe at the age, this was back in 2016, I think he was about 91 then. I rang the doorbell and Joe is now pretty much bound to a recliner. He can't move, very frail, very weak in his age. And I said, hey, Joe, do you remember this? And I put the rifle into his hands and a burst of energy like I'd never seen a 90-year-old do before. Just He raises the rifle, puts it in his shoulder, he starts waving it around. It swings by my face practically. I'm ducking out of the way, and he's smiling from ear to ear, slapping the rifle into his palms. And he starts talking about the Battle of Okinawa. And I just sit there for over two hours. I press record on my phone, and I sit there, and I listen to everything I didn't know about this man. And I remember by the time he was done talking about the Battle of Okinawa and his age and his health, he could barely keep his head up. And I said, oh, you know, this is really a race against time here in these stories. I said, Joe, sign your name on my rifle. I always want to remember this. He didn't want to at first. He's like, this is such a beautiful firearm. Why would you want me to mark it up? I said, please just sign. I always want to remember this. He signed his name, Corporal Joe Drago, 6th Marine Division, Okinawa. I left his house. I'm on his front porch looking down at his name. And I said, I am going to collect as many signatures as possible on this rifle. And here I am. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. How did you find the people to sign the rifle? Every body and soul I met was different, honestly. After I looked at his name, I said, wow, I just got a taste of the Pacific. Let's get a European theater veteran on there. The year's 2016, the VA at the time said there was less than 400,000 veterans left of the 116 million World War II veterans. They're not just walking around anymore. They're not at the diners anymore. They're not in the bingo halls anymore. So I started doing some research. You know, I'll tell you how I met the second veteran was he was 97-year-old John McAuliffe. He was the president of the Battle of the Bulge Association here in Massachusetts. Now, the chapter had since dissolved. Nobody could make meetings anymore. But he, as the president, was still alive in his project building apartment on the 14th floor, living there alone. And here am I with a rifle coming into this, you know, apartment complex. Originally, that was built for low-income veterans returning home from the 1940s, but now is, of course, just a different array of people and, and low-income housing and new immigrants. And here's this little old World War II veteran who this structure was originally built for in this fishbowl of a city of this apartment complex. And I just thought that was unique. And inside of his apartment, he had meeting minutes and notes from the Battle of the Bulge meetings association from the floor to the ceiling. And he signs my rifle and then gives me the names of numbers of men he believes are still alive from the Battle of the Bulge Association. And I remember he signed my rifle and I remember leaving with all these notes and all these new leads. And I'm walking out the door and John never had any kids. His wife had passed away like 10 years and here he is giving me a Nazi dagger that he brought home giving me his uniform. And it was just like he was almost waiting for me his whole life, waiting for who to give this to. And it sparked from there. And some of the men I found from reading after action reports who earned silver stars or were wounded or captured, 
I'm reading their 75-year-old after-action reports where their names are mentioned in the documents. And then I look them up in the white pages or I look them up in the yellow pages or I see if there's an obituary and I track down their phone number. Luckily, I'm a police officer. It's my full-time job. And so I, my detective skills are pretty good. I'm trying to find anybody who's still alive. Did you begin then to try to get a balance between Pacific and Atlantic and move back and forth? Absolutely. I wanted to represent the whole war on the rifle. So here I am now, I'm 20 signatures deep. Oh, wait a second. I don't have anybody from the Army Air Corps. Let's get a B-17 tail gunner on there. Let's get a B-29 bomber on there. Hey, I don't have anyone that fought in Burma. That's a little unknown place. No, let me get one of Merrill's Marauders on here. Okay, now I didn't have anybody that was first wave Omaha Beach. Let's get that guy. Let's do this. Getting into this journey... You know, a lot of authors were very fortunate. They started writing about World War II back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, while a lot of these guys were still alive. Here I am chasing ghosts. I have to go to every corner of the country to meet the veteran I want to meet because of how few their World War II generation is now. So how are you funding this? I did it out of my own pocket. Every nickel spent, I did it in my own pocket because it was the most therapeutic thing I ever did was to sit in front of these men who went through hell lived long, successful lives after combat, had families, had a career, were able to be police officers for 30 years, firemen, doctors, teachers, lawyers. They taught me so much. They didn't just teach me on how to be a good veteran, but like how to be a good father, a good husband. I saw towns and cities in this country I never thought I would see before, going to the Navajo Nation in Arizona, going up to the Mohawk tribe to meet a Mohawk code talker on the Canadian-New York border. You know, parts of Virginia and West Virginia I never thought I'd see before to meet Medal of Honor recipients. It was phenomenal. I'll never forget it. If you're trying to explain it to young people today, what's your biggest takeaway from meeting all these veterans? There's two takeaways. One would be the veteran takeaway and one would be the civilian takeaway. The veteran takeaway was that they were no different than me and the other young men and women who raised their hand after 9-11 to want to serve. We did it to be them. We've been living in the shadows of the greatest generation. And we view them as gods. We really do on what they did. Jumping into Normandy, raising the flag on Iwo Jima, surviving as a prisoner of war with no food. You know, this is why a lot of today's kids wear the uniform because they watch Saving Private Ryan. They watch Band of Brothers. And what I got to hear from these men, they were ordinary men thrown in an extraordinary time. And, you know, Joe Drago helped me understand that a little bit better because they used brute force. I mean, complete brute force to win that battle of Okinawa. You know, things that would be considered war crimes today weren't back then. Guys got away with a lot of stuff in order to kill a very radical enemy. And he made me really feel comfortable that I wasn't like inferior compared to a World War II veteran. He thought it was a joke that Marines actually got in trouble for urinating on dead Taliban in like 2010. He said, that's nothing compared to what we used to do. And you know, this is the greatest generation talking to me here. And so I just think it was such an eye opener, you know, for a young veteran to open this book and see that they're just as good and just as great for what they've done for our country. I think that's a good takeaway on the veteran side of it. And now that the book has sort of become famous, do you get a really strong reaction from veterans groups? You know, I said to myself going into this, you asked me if I was satisfied with the numbers and being number one in veterans history and in the top five of World War II books. And 
the numbers were great, but what kept me up at night was the approval of the veterans, right? The actual veterans I wrote about, are they okay with it? Sure, I sent them all a copy of their chapters. They approved it, you know, but I had a panic that are they going to be okay with the way I talked about the Battle of Saipan and what they did in the Battle of Saipan? Are they going to be okay when I talked about them eating cow dung as a prisoner of war with the Germans to survive? And when I got their head nods, emails from World War II veterans saying, Andy, your book is a treasure and you couldn't have told my story on Saipan surviving the largest Japanese bonsai charge of World War II. That felt amazing. Then came the messages from Korean War and Vietnam veterans. Great book. I finished it in a night. Then came the messages from my fellow Iraq and Afghanistan veterans, guys who have been blown up by IEDs, shot, saying, I couldn't put it down. I cried. Good job. Thank you. I mean, that's all I could ask for. That is all I could ask for. The numbers are great, but hearing those messages from the veterans are even better. Do you have a new project in mind? You know... The policing, as you know, this whole year has been absolutely insane. So this was such a good escape from the day job. I'm looking forward to getting my head totally back into the police force. But my next project regarding veterans, I think I'm really going to focus on writing Iraq, Afghanistan veterans. I I think I really want to be that guy who I'm the go-to for my generation of veterans. I've been helping them already for about 10 or 11 years with my motorcycle charity run in Boston, helping severely wounded veterans redo their apartments, buy them brand new cars, pay off their debt, that kind of thing. I don't collect a salary from that. I love it because, you know, IEDs didn't discriminate. and It didn't matter how good you are. If you stepped in the wrong place or drove in the wrong place, you could have been maimed for life. So those kids are my inspiration as well. So I hope to write about the recovery, recuperation, survival of America's wounded from Iraq and Afghanistan, maybe in the future. You're doing such great charitable work, Andy. How can people help you? People can help me, honestly. The first step is going on Amazon, purchasing the rifle. You'll find it. That all goes to help me run my charity called Boston's Wounded Veterans. That's great. Well, I think what you're doing is a terrific service. And I think there are many people who are going to cherish your book and who are going to look forward to your next project. I want to thank you. And I think the way it evolved, the way it became sort of self-starting, and then you just followed it down the road where it led you, is a great, great story. I'm very grateful to you as a veteran, and I'm very grateful to you as a citizen and a patriot for taking time out of your life to share with the American people some stories they really do need to know about how their country survived and how we became the most amazing country in the world. Andy, I just... I'm very honored to know you. I'm very proud of the work you're doing, and I look forward to your future books. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you to my guest, Andrew Biggio. You can get a link to order his new book, The Rifle, Combat Stories from America's Last World War II Veterans, told through an M1 Garand, in our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Pennick. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, 
Listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleha Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening.